I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Justin Berlin of Spanish Wine Exclusives on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I am very well. Very happy to be here. And as always, happy to talk about Spanish wine. Nice to see you. So you have a company called Spanish Wine Exclusives. Yeah, my company is Spanish Wine Exclusives, started by myself and my Spanish partner who lives in Rioja. She is an, a veteran of the export side of Spanish wine. She used to work for a number of different wineries and winery groups traveling all over the world, which is one of the reasons why our portfolio of wines is not only here in the States, but we're also selling in other countries. So we, we've chosen our portfolio to be special, low production things. We started off not trying to be the big players and doing big moves. We started small, bit by bit with really cool producers that had really high quality stuff. And we're not kind of fitting in the typical importer's concept of what made it worthwhile. In other words, too small quantities, especially for the bigger players who were in multiple markets and all that. Our concept is to bring in, even though they may be price competitive, but wines that offer a little edge in quality, a little more bang for the buck, a little more wine for the money. So that's kind of our strategy at the moment for expanding. And you're also sussing out older vintages. And that's our other specialty that actually has been a big hook into the market for us, has been finding old collections. Old Rioja is probably my favorite, the thing I love and seek out the most and have struggled over the years to find affordable examples of. Thankfully for me, personally, it's not an area that the big money collectors really go after, which meant it's kind of neglected for the quality it has. So personally, I don't want to push the wines too much because then I'll be priced out of them myself and not even be able to drink them, which, you know, is kind of the point. Those wines are really special and I will put up in a blind tasting against any of the top wines in the world from any of the top regions. And I think in terms of age worthiness and complexity and quality, 
the better examples will, will compete with the better examples from Burgundy, Bordeaux, Barolo, and often wines costing 10 times more. So what are the, the better examples? I mean, what are the producers that I should know for older classic Spanish wines like Rioja? And what are the vintages that I should know dating back to the mid-century? The classic, what I would say are the sort of blue chip standard bearers of classic Rioja. The ones that still today maintain that level of quality because some of them, you know, have faded and others have risen. Probably I would say Marquez de Murrieta, which is actually one of the few that trades at the fancy auction houses. Those wines are age-worthy, spectacular. Often they're aged for 30 years in barrel before they're even released. For instance, their 1981 and 82 Castillo Gai, their Gran Reserva, has not yet been released. You could buy the Reserva back in the day, but not their flagship. So those wines probably are highest on the radar for Rioja. Next, I would put Cune, which recently has received quite a lot of publicity, and rightly so, for their excellence over the decades. And I'm not listing these necessarily in what's, quote, better, because it all comes down to personal taste at a certain moment when you're dealing with really high quality. I would also put in Marquez de Riscal. People don't really think of Marquez de Riscal because it's kind of everywhere as a really quality producer. But they were one of the originators in Spain, in Rioja, of just top quality Bordeaux-influenced wines. So their, uh, well, what are now called Gran Reservas, but in the day was just called the Reserva because they only made one wine. It was the Reserva. Now they make millions of bottles at an amazingly high level given, you know, the, the price. But their Gran Reservas today or their Reservas back from probably earlier than the 70s are tremendous wines. They also had Cabernet Sauvignon in them keeping to their Bordeaux heritage. So those wines are amongst the best. And even not necessarily Spanish-oriented publications like Wine Spectator, they've done retrospectives of those wines. Paul Pontellier from Chateau Margaux, he consults there. So the, the connection is real, and the, and the age-worthiness and quality of those wines is spectacular. The 25 Marquez de Riscal is just gorgeous, silky, elegant wine. Others who may like uh, more punch. Probably one of the most legendary wines in Spain is the 45. Um, 64, outstanding. 50s was probably the decade of the most great vintages in uh, Rioja. They had, well, 50 was a very strong vintage, maybe not the greatest, but a long-lived one. 52 was a great vintage. 55 was a great vintage. The thing about the 55 is it was probably a bit more on the lighter, elegant side. So those maybe are not uh, the most collectible. Though I had a 55 Riscal, well, I got two bottles of it and I happened upon. They were just glorious wines. It's like they just had everything. And they, they weren't even as light as I thought they would be. So the other one, 58 and 59, both depending on producer were were excellent vintages. I think 58s classified as excellent, but some people's 59s were probably better. 
So the 50s were a fantastic decade for excellence in Rioja amongst the sort of grand crews, if you will. Those were probably the big three. And also back in those days, a winery that's faded off and now is starting to come back is Bill Bainas. They had a wine called Vinazaco, which now is like a $12 entry-level Rioja that's actually pretty good for the price. But back in those days, that wine was a serious wine, and they had a version called the Gran Zacco, which they only did in, in superior vintages. And if you find Gran Zaccos, they will compete with, the be- with everyone's best, especially in, in the best vintages. So Bilbaenus with their Vigna Pomal and your Gran Zacco and Vigna Zacco, those were great, great, great wines in those 40s, 50s, 60s decades. Other wineries that are of high quality, of course, Lopez de Heredia, which is very well known in the States now due to their amazing library collections. They're probably the most traditional. So their style is, you know, kind of more on the high acid style and leaner style. So they are another producer, maybe not at the very tippy top and but in the great vintages, you know, in the great vintages, I would say they all can compete with having the best wines. I'd say some of the others I mentioned may be, may be a little more consistent in the off vintages. But with Lopez de Heredia as well, some off vintages, quote, off vintages are make glorious wines. So it's really hard. It's really hard to generalize about the vintages for that reason. Because the the better producers, even in lesser vintages, could have happened to make a really great wine. Generally speaking, I would say the great vintages, you know, they they tend to bear out their reputations. It, you know, if you have a a sixty four, it's probably going to be better than a sixty three, for instance, which is not a very good vintage. Though I've had a Riscal sixty three, which my birth year, which was. Beautiful, lovely wine. Did it have the magic of a 64? No. But was it a seriously good wine? Yes. So I think you can generalize to a point, but you can also be pleasantly surprised with especially some of those classic producers when they were working on all cylinders. What's the aging curve of a Tempranillo-based wine? You're talking about wines that are 60 years old, 70 years old sometimes. How do they change in bottle? Well, I think the the probably the most obvious factor is the oak gets soaked up more and more over time. So in their youth, the oak's going to stand out, but like wines everywhere. I'd say Tempranillo tends to reach its kind of drinkability plateau earlier than Cabernet Sauvignon, for instance, uh, notwithstanding, you know, newer techniques where Wineries are making the wines less astringent, more ripe, and more ready to drink earlier. Even so, I think Tempranillo tends to be ready a little sooner, and it tends to last a little longer. In part, it has to do with uh, acidity levels. And decades ago in Rioja, they even included white wines, white Bura, in the blend to help keep that acidity high. And 
And I think you really see that today in Lopez de Heredia. Those wines have a, a much sharper acidity level than than maybe a, a more voluptuous style of Vigna Real, for instance. But Vigna Reals are really last long. And so it, it's, it, as always, it really depends. It's kind of, um, you know, just a matter of how chance and producers and everything came together in that vintage. And you alluded to a difference between modern and traditional and different eras of Rioja. When did that start to shift from one to another? I think to boil down the history of Rioja, you go back to Phylloxera when the French were struggling under the Phylloxera problems with their vines being decimated. They came to Rioja, uh, although there's some folks like Marquez de Riscal and Marquez de Murrieta, they had already come from a, a French and British perspective and had already tried to bring that to Rioja. So barrel aging, that was uh, basically you were making wines in the French style, aging in barrels. So that was kind of the starting point of what I would call, you know, modern in the broad sense. That developed to be more commercially consistent, I think, in terms of using brands and and trying to create a, a style that, you know, continued year after year. So that more or less continued through to probably the late 60s. And what happened in Spain is similar to what happened all over Europe. And that was industrialization. That was using pesticides. I think even earlier on using nursery varietals was another issue. So you tried to make more productive, less uh, susceptible to disease type clones, which were not necessarily making the best wines, but they were at least ensuring you had a crop and you could have your cash that year. So what you had with industrialization was especially bad in Rioja, not because they used more pesticides or because they started using tractors and all the other stuff. It's because they also started overplanting. So you kind of had a double whammy where you got overproduction and with commercial clones and with pesticides and herbicides and all the things that, you know, the wine world's still reacting against now especially with the rise of biodynamics and organics and the sort of movement towards back to nature, it's really a reaction to what happened in the 70s. May, may have happened earlier in Italy. But in Spain, you know, it really took a toll in terms of the quality level, especially in Rioja. And Rioja, along with Sherry, was, were pretty much the two known brands. The other areas more or less emulated Rioja for red wines, because they didn't really have the identity. The one exception being Vega Sicilia in Ribera del Duero, but Ribera del Duero wasn't even a appellation until 1982. So industrialization, that's kind of where it all stems from when we talk about traditional and modern. And that was kind of a turning point when the big, powerful, traditional wines like Imperial, Vignarial, Marcus Ruscal, and others, they all began to struggle. I, I think those producers 
actually kept to their guns and continued to produce quality, at, you know, more or less. But elsewhere, the drive for higher production, higher volume, and all this additional planning led to thinner, weaker wines. So all the goodwill they had created in the marketplace before the 70s started to wane when the wines started to be weaker and lighter. And, you know, the, the vineyards hadn't even matured, so you're using younger vines as well. So there's a number of factors that led to lesser wines. And many people think of those, quote, lesser wines of the 70s as what traditional was. And that's kind of a, a pale image of what traditional really was, which was powerful, rich wines that could stand long aging because of acidity, because of extraction levels. You can have 1928s, you can have 1947s. There are powerful monster dark wines that are staggering to think that they're as old as they are when you drink them today because, you know, they really have got some guts. So often what's thought of as traditional in that sense, it was a lesser version of tradition. So you move from the 70s on to more or less the late 80s, early 90s. That's when Rioja kind of had to fight back and rebuild itself, especially with Ribera del Duero getting a lot of attention in the 80s. 1982 was when Robert Parker, the famous wine critic, noticed Pescara as being a real value of in terms of high quality, but also reasonable price because it was Spanish. And he sort of started putting Ribera del Duero on the map and so in a way, Rioja coming back in the late 80s, early 90s was in a way a reaction to the fact they were being outgunned from these upstarts, even though Vega Sicilia had been there, you know, for a long, long time before. So the quote, modern wines began in the late 80s, early 90s. Probably one of the landmark wines was Torre Muga from Muga, which is a really great house from top to bottom, no matter what cuvee you have, there's always quality. And they had made Prado Enea. They even had a Grand Reserva back then, which is no longer made, which was an elegant, delicate, more Rioja Alta style wine. But they created a, a new wine called Torre Muga, which was powerful, extracted, going for more ripeness, less about acidity, so pretty much following right in the steps of Bordeaux earlier in 1990 or so with the influence of Emile Peinot and Robert Parker's valorizing that kind of concept of making wines drinkable and ready to go and rich and powerful from the get-go. So Torre Muga was a, a major force in, in getting that rolling. Along with Torre Muga, there was Ramirez de Ganutha, another, quote, modernist, trying to make wines that were much more ready to roll, delicious, powerful, ripe, and a far, far cry from some of the paler, more industrial uh, Riojas of the 70s and 80s for those who, you know, didn't keep up the old ways. So that, I would say, is that's the moment when it sort of started to turn 
what really solidified the movement was the 94 vintage, which was a great vintage. 95 was a great vintage as well, and for some, 96. So you had three really good years. So suddenly those people who started in, say, 1990 or so, planning out a new thing to do, those bottlings came to fruition in 94, 95, and 96. So you suddenly had, across Rioja, any number of producers, whether they're brand new producers like Ramiro Teganutha, or whether they were uh, like Muga, who had been in the game for quite a while and wanted to do something new. Even Marcus de Riscal, one of the oldest and most, I would say, classical, they created a wine called Baron de Chirel, which had quite a bit of cab, though legally they can't call it cab. It says on the label, other. But it's a cab-based wine. It's more rich. It's If you can find Baron de Chirel, it's beautiful, elegant wine. You get the the sort of black currants that you get in Bordeaux. It's really pretty wine. Um, so those kind of wines started being created and those were quote modern. Um, but the divide isn't so much about wood because a lot of times in other regions, when you think of traditional versus modern, you think of a divide over wood use, but it sounds like wood's always been there for Rioja. Wood's always been there and Wood has always been a big part of Rioja, especially American oak, which often has a coconut tone, which is very, you know, obvious to those experienced in in different kinds of oak. You've got a lot of American oak. So that's always been there. What changed is with these, quote, modern wines, they were released much earlier. So the effects of the oak was much more obvious. So rather than being released five, seven 10 years later, like a Grand Reserva might be, the wines were released two years after the vintage. So two years after the oak is still very present. It hasn't integrated like it eventually will. So the oak may have seemed more prevalent. It really wasn't. There was a serious difference in the sense that they did use new oak more often and they used French oak. So oak really was different. They use French oak, which more or less before that, it was American oak. On the other hand, some will argue that French oak is a little more subtle and refined. So even though they're using brand new oak, it's French oak. So it's not quite as, uh, you know, strong effects as a new American oak might have. So what you had is a whole range of people using, some using French, some using American, some using new, some using mixed new and old, some like Lopez de Redia, not changing a bit and using very old oak, like decades old oak, that you, the oak influence you get in wines like Lopez de Redia is more like a really old armoire, like wood oil, kind of dusty kind of oak. It's a totally different, totally different thing. So it's not so much that oak was the factor as ripeness. To me, ripeness and extraction were the bigger factor. Also on the selecting table, they were much more careful about removing green elements. They were like the French, much more concerned about phenolic ripeness so that you weren't getting green tones in, you know, from stems and pips and even skin. So you had a whole range of factors, ripeness, maceration times, heat of the macerations. So they might use hotter, 
higher temperature macerations, faster, richer wines. So a lot of it in retrospect, for instance, in a blind tasting, both five years and 10 years after 94 vintage, the easiest way to tell the modernist from the traditionalist more than anything was the color. Because a wine like La Rioja Alta uses a ton of American oak and it's really present. And if you just think you smell oak, it's modern wrong in Rioja. It really was a case where the color was the biggest distinguishing factor. And along with that color, you might have also had less acidity because they were going for more ripeness and, you know, at the expense of acidity. So in that case, some would argue that those modern wines may not age as well as the classics, in large part because of these acid levels being lower and the ripeness higher and the alcohol higher. The other thing is there's another theory that slow, long aging in barrel stabilizes a wine in a way that you just can't get with quick aging for just a couple of years before release. I, I've definitely noticed that myself in a number of wines, especially when you're talking about imported wines that have to travel across oceans, not always in perfect uh, conditions. The stability level of those wines that were aging 5, 10, 20 years in barrel with really slow micro-oxygenation, it, it's just a very different thing. And I don't think it's by accident that the Bordelais were trying micro-oxygenation to try to speed up the process of being ready to drink. So, you know, you see all those crazy gizmos over there in Bordeaux. They're, they're trying to basically accelerate that process that in Spain, places like Marcos and Murrieta were spending 30 years in barrel. And needless to say, that's not very good economics in terms of turning over your product when you're waiting 30 years for it to be released. So the 70s is the low point. 70s is also when Franco dies, right? Yeah, he died in 75, I think, and he he had a big influence on the wine world in Spain for probably two big reasons. One, Spain was isolated economically, so they didn't really have markets. Their wine production was pretty much all for internal markets, so they didn't have folks from other countries saying, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? We like it a little sweeter. We like it a little more ripe, whatever. The, except for a small minority of more successful producers, it was kind of left to the Spanish market and it was a poor country. So people were not looking for the best and the greatest necessarily. I mean, always there were some, but so the isolation economically was a big thing. The other big thing is sort of like the Soviets with their five-year plans and nationalization and all that, dictators will be dictators and they want production. So they made sure there was a strong program of co-ops. So the co-ops in Spain were very strong and pretty much every town in a wine region had co-ops or multiple co-ops. And Co-ops, while allowing for production and for lots of jobs for workers, weren't necessarily oriented toward high-quality wines. 
In fact, just the opposite. They're oriented towards uh, volume so that they could get paid by volume every harvest. So you kind of entrenched a system, a widespread system of co-ops. What's happened since Franco died is some of the co-ops have decided, okay, let's Let's step up to the plate and make really good wines. Other co-ops, they've had members leave, more enterprising people or perhaps people who had some especially good vineyards, and they just started making their own wine and selling it under their own name. And in Ribera del Duero, for instance, once the Appalachian started and Pescara gained wide success, and then in 94, there was an even bigger success in Ribera. There was not that many producers back then because it was mostly co-ops. So you could count the top producers, you know, in one, maybe two hands. There's just not that many. What's happened since then is a lot of those six, seven really good producers, they did lose some of their growers that they worked with because those people said, well, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. And why don't I tape my pre-phylox or 100-year-old vines and make my own wine with my own family name because my family's been making wine here, you know, for four generations. So we know a thing or two. As we all know, running a winery in a business is maybe not the same thing as growing grapes or even vinifying them well. So, you know, there's more to it than just having good grapes and the will, which the more successful ones obviously were able to put both things together, the business side and the growing side. But now today, I think there's something like 200 producers in Ribera del Duero. And there are a lot of Ribera del Duero wines and there's a lot of good wines. So the competition is so much different than the way it used to be. And that's because more or less the co-op system has really fallen fallen away because everyone was seeing, you know, sustainable way to make a good living rather than selling as much grapes as I could as cheaply to the co-op. So that's a huge change from the Franco days. Between Rioja and Roberto de Duero, which wineries became sort of the pillars of the more modern hierarchy? Who became the standouts? In Rioja, the wines of Ramirez de Ganutha, Rhoda is another one who they really took seriously and scientifically went about mapping the different vineyards they worked with, working on phenolic ripeness, and really all the cutting-edge techniques that they had in Bordeaux to make powerful, modern, really high-quality wines, sorting tables, the whole, the works. So Rhoda was one. The Egerin family with Sierra Cantabria was their sort of more traditional winery. They released a number of really high-quality upper-end wines any of the others also brought in one or two really high quality wines. So there were not so many that were strictly a new winery, only doing modern thing like Rhoda and Ramirez de Ganusa, probably the two biggest, most important. Whereas others like Muga, they brought in Tore Muga, which, which is a great wine and a modern wine, but they still have their other things that they do. They also created a Reserva Especial, which was a more modern style as well. So the thing about Rioja is that it wasn't like in Italy where you were either a barricist 
and you went all the way and screw your father and you're going to make it your way. It was more like, well, let's do that and we'll do what we used to do and we'll see how it goes. And I think in, in Spain, there was a little more openness to experimentation and a little less doctrinal thou must use barrique kind of thing. But the production levels are also higher, right? I mean, yes, you know, Barlow Mascarell is making like 4,000 cases a year compared to Muga, which I, I imagine makes a lot more. So they, in the product line, they can have multiple offerings. That's that's very true. It's it's much less segmented in the Burgundian sense in Rioja. And a, another big difference, unlike Rioja and Barolo, where there are crews and the, the blends are maybe not the top wines everyone was looking at. Rioja was always an area, a region of blending. So you might have some grapes from the Alta section. You might have some grapes from Alavesa. You might even have Garnacha from the Baja subregion. So describing a, a winery in terms of geography is a little misleading in Rioja, except for some producers who really stuck to single vineyards, uh, of which there are only few. And even wineries that might have been primarily Rioja Alta, they might have had different sections of Rioja Alta. They might have one that was more geared towards power, another where they were they're using those grapes for their to get acidity and you know create the right blend. So much of Rioja is about the blend, and so it's not strictly bound up in you know, this is my crew and this is what I make and, you know, take it or leave it. Because Rioja did have some strong brands, those brands needed grapes year in, year out. And if you had a problem in one area, you naturally had to go somewhere else to find some grape growers who had the right kind of grapes to keep your brand where it should be. Maybe you produce less, but you you still produced it and you still managed somehow. Another thing is before the joining the EU in 82, the wineries of Spain, they, they would often top up with a little more of a younger vintage to add a little freshness to keep, you know, to what people were expecting. So, But they can't do that anymore. Now, actually in all of Europe, you can do up to 15%, but not more. I don't know how big of percentages they did back before 82. Probably they often did 5 to 15%, probably only when it was a real critical situation where they had a serious problem that they might need to do more. So that's always been part of what Rioja does is keep quality level high year in and year out. And you do that by blending, not by having the coolest, most awesome single vineyard. It seems sometimes like some of the wines that became popular in a more modern era also had a, some of them, had a Grenache focus from Baja. Yes, there there were some producers, Ramando Palacio, I think is one. They're mostly in Baja. They have really great old vineyards, Tempranillo and Garnacha. Those wines, it's actually now run by Alvaro Palacios of Priorat fame. That's a winery that maintains, and I think rightly so, they have great old vineyards, but they're in Baja and they have great Garnacha that's in Baja. 
So, you know, those wineries kind of got a little short shrift because they were from Baja, but, you know, there's a great heritage there. And as you're saying, Garnacha is kind of what they're more known for and what they have in the Baja area more so. And producers, like actually one of the wineries I work with, Basilio Izquierdo, he worked at Cune for 32 years. He started his own personal project. And his feeling was, if you go back to the 30s and earlier, there was a lot more ganacha, especially in wines like Viña Real. So ganacha, even though people think of it now as a fresh, youthful, ready-to-drink wine, there are others who believe that that's actually part of what made the blend age-worthy, not just the Tempranillo, but having some of that garnacha actually added a more, I think, robust sturdiness, so to speak, because the, there's the whole thing in Rioja with the two different bottle shapes, the Bordeaux claret style and the burgundy sloped bottle. For Rioja, they kind of felt the claret bottle, the Bordeaux style bottle was the the more elegant, lighter wine, whereas the Burgundy bottle was the powerful, more rustic wine. And so you often see bottlings that sometimes reflect that. Sometimes there's no real correlation, and it's kind of hard to know why they chose what they did. But there seemed to be a connection with the Garnacha and the Burgundy bottle, at least in some wineries. Vina Ardanza, a famous Rioja Alta producer, actually La Rioja Alta, they use Garnacha in their Viña Ardanza to a higher percentage than most. And they carried that through since, you know, the brand was, was created years and years ago. Even though Ardanza was originally named after a vineyard, they use Garnacha. It still has a high percentage of Garnacha. And it's, you know, it's a fantastic wine and you can have old vintages that are just utterly gorgeous. Um, 89 was a great vintage for Ardanza, for instance, 82, also beautiful. So what's the situation on the ground in terms of production of Rioja today? I, sometimes I encounter very small producers who maybe are buying in grapes. Sometimes I encounter very large producers who are historical and have huge barrel aging cellars. What's the landscape really look like? The landscape is really varied. You have anywhere from a small guy with a few vineyards and he doesn't even have barrel aging and he just makes young wines. He's more organically inclined and just doing his cool little project. That's sort of, it goes all the way from there to guys like Basilio Izquierdo, who he works with select vineyards that he manages and makes sure have the quality he wants, but he's only making thousands of cases a year, not even tens of thousands. And then from there, it goes up to bigger, more commercial brands that might be making hundreds of thousands of bottles, like maybe, say, Muga. And then you go from there all the way up to big commercial producers like Marquez de Caceres, who makes millions of bottles. And, you know, you, you go to their winery and they have some amazing old wine vineyards, but they also have an amazing bottling plant because they produce a lot of bottles. And what I think's always been great about Rioja is even the most commercial wineries actually make wines that can age, maybe not as long as, you know, better, more personalized examples, but 
you can buy, if you can find a bottle of Marquez de Caceres 82 Crianza, for instance, it's really a lovely, delicious, complex wine still alive. How many other regions in the world can you, you know, find that from a wine that at the time probably sold for $7.99? Well, actually in 82, probably even less. So today it's a $12 wine and you can keep it for 20 years. It's pretty cool or longer. So what I would say is for the more commercial medium tier producers, there's still a level of quality to be found in Rioja that's hard to beat elsewhere in terms of the finesse of what they're doing because they've done it for so long and so well. So that would be kind of one thing. There, there are Still what I would call refugees from the 70s who are making light, more tired wines. I don't really pay much attention to them, actually. But those wines, too, exist. This, quote, schism between modern and traditional. One thing that a friend of mine always reminds me not to lose sight of is most of those modern wines were ambitious, expensive wines. Those are not what most of Rioja is. Most of Rioja is affordable wines... Crianzas meant to be drunk in restaurants and not trying to be these ambitious showstoppers or showcase wines. So all of those drinkable everyday kind of wines is most of what's made. So although the profile of the modernists was high, the production was low. You don't make much of that stuff because you're using your very best grapes and treating them with the greatest care and selecting the most and you know, pushing off things that don't make the grade into other wines. So even though the profile's high, most of Rioja is still making drinkable crianzas that are, quote, traditional in the sense. They're not highly extracted. They aren't using all the fancy techniques. I think the region in general has grown as every other quality region has in terms of the bar has been raised even at the lower end. So I think for the most part, the wines are much better than they were in the 70s, even from the sort of mass market producers who, they may crank it out, but, you know, the, the baseline is still pretty high. And have you discovered other unfortified <clears throat> wines from Spain, from other areas in your travels, trying to suss out some real great wines that you could offer with age on it? We would love to find more Ribera del Duero's. The reality is they simply aren't around. It's kind of like trying to find old Tuscan wines. I'm sure you've encountered that. It's like people drank them and they didn't really collect them like they collected Barolos or in Spain, like they collected Riojas. So when we go out trying to find old vintage wines, you know, they're almost always Rioja. There aren't many places where you can find older vintages of Ribera del Duero, which probably is one of the better examples. And it's in part because that wasn't even an appellation until 82. So really, for the most part in Spain, the quality red wine, the kind of red wine that people thought was actually worthy of saving, you know, rightfully or wrongly, was Rioja. You can happen upon La Mancha's from the 80s or even Humillas or other lowly regarded wineries and there's actually some really good wines, like surprisingly good, that actually do age. It's just that people didn't think they could or would, and they didn't. 
So those wines are really hard to find. Uh, sherry would be the the big exception. Those fortified wines are, you know, amazing. It's not like we can find old vintages of those around, but the ones that the producers have in their stocks show an incredible complexity and quality of those wines. Sherry is probably the only other place to get wines that even if they're not vintage dated, they are old wines that are really high quality. And what about Sherry? What would your hierarchy there be for great old-time producers through to today? The Sherry market, because they really became unpopular, the Sherry market really has changed and so many wineries were bought by giant concerns you know pinot ricard and all of these corporate takeovers in the 80s and such so many of the brands are not there anymore what we're left with is not so many producers but all of them actually are with a few exceptions are pretty high quality valdespino comes to mind as a great producer gonzalez bs great producer Domecq, they no longer really exist. Their best stocks have been sold off. Osborne's top stocks as well sold off. So there's been such a mishmash of tradings and takeovers of the brands that it's really it's really kind of a kind of hard to really point out really high quality brands. I think if I'm looking for really high quality wine from Sherry, I'm looking for one or another of two things, and that's VOS and VORS, the two designations of, e- of either 20 or 30 years of average age, which they actually do carbon dating on, so it's not like they're making it up. Pretty much if someone's producing a VOS or a VORS quality wine, it's really good. Obviously, within those, there are different grades of intensity and quality, which is often roughly you know, there's a correlation with price. The really old ones tend to be more expensive. And, you know, you can see it in the color in the glass that, wow, that's really dark and must be really old. And that's because it is. So my general guideline, if you're looking for really high quality in sherry, and I'm not talking about Finos and Manzanillas, is VOS and VORS. If they have those designations, they're seriously good wines. And the styles vary from house to house, some more delicate in their Amontillado, some more sharp and powerful, for instance, in the Amontillado ranges. Others may be more sweet in their Palo Cortados, whereas others will be more dry. And then you have the different sweetnesses kind of mixing up the categories even more. So it's really a complex area with so many exceptions to the rule that it's really hard to to generalize. Most of the ones in, imported in the U.S. are pretty pretty good quality. And like I said, VRS and VOS, those are the ones. What have been some standout bottles of sherry that you've had over the years? Standout bottles, I'd say they, a lot of them have to be Valdespinos. The Cardinal, Paolo Cortado, which is stunning, complex wine. And the... Ninos, I just had the other day. It's just a beautiful PX. What makes it so great is the acidity level, the balance. It's not syrupy and and overbearing. It's 
just like incredibly intense. Tonellis, their Muscatel is drop dead gorgeous. You know, people talk about how long is the finish on a wine. A wine like that, the finish is like five minutes. And, and you know, it's, it's hard to talk about what is the finish of a wine because the dividing line is when the finish starts and when it's mostly gone and when it's all the way gone, it's kind of like a gray area. And I like to say that, you know, it's, it's hard to know the point when the finish ends and the memory be, continues along in your head, in your palate at the same time. And wines like that, they just last forever in your mouth. It's just like amazing. And the other great thing that's happened in Sherry is the advent of Equipo Novasos. I, I do work with them with one of their wines, the Manzanilla, but their Labota series where they have gone ahead and found small batches, basically barrel selections from different Soleros that were not commercialized and bottled them in small quantities. They basically brought back a really true and interest in how great sherry can be because they, they showed up with the goods and everything they make is really good. Sometimes it may be more or less to your particular taste, but the quality level is always there because they just find really good stuff and they put it together and bottle it. And they, I would say, are a, a really great force for showing the world how fantastic sherry is whether they're they're doing a relatively young Palo Cortado or something very old. It's all very singular, powerful, complex, balanced wines. So they're another place to look for Equipo Novasos. There's various series of different wines. So your own engagement with Spanish wine really began when you were in film school in New York. Yes, I... Didn't know much about wine when I was in grad school in the late 80s. I pretty much had some French and some Spanish friends in grad school, so we had some wine, but we were grad students. We didn't have any money. We had, you know, modest means and, you know, would buy a brie and some cheap red wine. And that's kind of like probably goes on today the same way. However, one of my good friends was from a Spanish filmmaking family. And in 1991, I was invited to his wedding in Madrid. And that kind of started it all for me. He invited me to Spain. I arrived. I landed and like within an hour of getting to his house, we went off to shop for an informal reception before the ceremony the next day. So we went and bought Iberico ham from Hobugo, which is a particularly good source. And we bought cheese and chorizo and all of the really great delicacies that are just commonplace in Spain. And we brought those home and opened some wine. It wasn't especially great wine. It wasn't connoisseur wine. It was good wine, you know, for a nice occasion, but nothing, you know, exceptional. And we just proceeded to have a great time talking, drinking, eating, hanging out. And it was loads of fun. And I didn't even speak Spanish. So that tells you how good the times can be in those kind of settings where people are just happy, enjoying food and wine and company. And 
you know, that kind of is the heart of what it's all about for me. And that's what really got me going on wine was those moments. It wasn't like, oh, I had the most amazing wine ever. It was just hanging out with friends and having a really good time. All your senses, you know, taken into account, whether it's taste, smell, or your intellectual faculties, you know, as you engage with people you never met or just chatting with friends, taking on ideas. Uh, maybe that's something of youth, but it's something I think we all enjoy at every age is the pleasure and excitement of good company. So that was really what started it for me. That's what brought me to wine. Because when I got back to New York, I thought, whoa, why don't we do this here in New York? You know, just hang out and eat and drink. And it's not that we didn't do it. It's just there wasn't a culture of enjoying it so much and taking your time so much. It's more like, where can we find a cheap place to go? Because bars and we're not really set up for eating it. You didn't really eat at bars. You're lucky to get some peanuts. Or restaurants, you know, it's kind of expensive and you can't hang out at a restaurant for four hours normally, especially on a student budget. So finding that kind of Spanish lifestyle and being able to replicate it was really what brought me to wine. Being an obsessive kind of guy, always hungry to know about things. I started learning about Spanish wine, started reading all the magazines, started getting guidebooks, reading about French wine, Spanish wine, Italian wine. In those days, drinking Spanish wine in the States was not so easy. There are not many importers. There are not many wines produced that made it here. They mostly tended to be what I would call more mass market type wines that, you know, they were part of a big distribution chain. They were not necessarily the best wines. Um, and because Spanish wines were relatively unknown, you know, were not sought after enough for people to stock them on their shelves. The other big difference, I think that's the, the big problem that Spaniards had was the lack of Spanish restaurants in the U S and in New York, you did have some because there was a Spanish community, but they're relatively few and they were a bit faded, sort of remnants from the 50s kind of restaurants. Some of them still exist, some of them have modernized, and some of them still have really good stuff, but they were, you know, not sort of places you really sought out. So, on the other hand, with Italian restaurants, you had Italian restaurants became very popular and and you could get Chianti's and all kinds of great wines um, in Italian restaurants. So that was another factor. There weren't that many places, and those that were tended to be more sit-down, white tablecloth places where you couldn't just go just to hang out. It's like you had to go for a dinner. So a big difference. And what I see now almost 25 years later is there are a ton of tapas bars all over Manhattan, especially downtown. And you can actually, you know, hang out, just get a snack or two or hang out for hours and hours and get a lot of snacks. Of course, being in Manhattan, your bill gets pretty high, unlike in Spain where it's more modest. Um, but now the potential is, is fantastic. 
And what about for the wine? How has that change happened over 25 years for wine from Spain in New York? Well, back when I first came back from Spain looking for Spanish wines in New York, I found very few. I found many of the sort of bigger brands that you still find today, Marquez de Caceres, Marquez de Riscal, some Montesillo. All the M's. All the M's. They were there. You had a, a few others here and there. You had Torres, who from Catalonia, their Sangre de Toro was actually a pretty, pretty well-made wine, surprisingly. But so it was pretty much relegated to kind of big brands that were not particularly distinctive and not really highly sought out. They might have offered good value. Um, you might have seen a wine spectator seal on a bottle of Marquez de Caceres, but those were not the great wines that Spanish wine lovers sought out. So they just weren't really here. If you went to a really good wine shop, you wouldn't find much. Didn't really, it really took that moment when it turned from traditional to modern, that early 90s for the 94 vintage, the 95 vintage, the 96 vintage. When those vintages started turning up in the U.S. after some press they got, which is part of the reason they turned up, is people were reading about these wines like, wow, Robert Parker gives 95 points to Pesquera Crianza. That was a wine that sold for 22 to 26 bucks. And back in those days, there weren't many 95-point Parker wines, let alone ones that only cost 25 bucks. So, you know, that's a statement, and people wonder, well, where can I get that? One of the pioneering importers, Steve Metzler of Classical Wines, he brings in Pescara, still does today. So Pescara started to be more available, for instance, in around 97 after Parker wrote that review, I think towards the end of the year. So 97, 98, you started to see those wines. And that was kind of a turning point. The confluence of some critical notice in the various magazines and the excellent vintages and the, the third element being sort of the more modern style some producers were doing really upping the ante for the traditionalists who were kind of laying on their laurels. So all those things came together. So the late 90s was when you really started to see the wines come in. Concurrently, there was also Priorat, which was making a bang in the press as well. Robert Parker amongst those praising the wines of Priorat. So you started to see some of those early vintages and those wines, the, the sort of key pioneers, their first vintage was 92. And those wines, Clos Martinet, Clos de Labac, Clos Erasmus, and Clos Dauphie, which is later renamed Finca Dauphie, those, those wines were all the same wine, just with different labels in 1992. They fermented and aged it together. Yeah, they basically made it all together and... I think the plan was eventually they were each going to do their own versions and maybe have their own cuvées and whatnot, which is what happened. And some went their own ways completely. Others were remained more connected to each other. Um, but the bottom line was 
they were making some pretty interesting wines. I remember going to a retailer looking for some of these wines. And I think this was at Acromeral and I and I talked to an older gentleman who who turned out to be one of one of the Capon family members, one of the older gentlemen, and he just kind of looked over at those wines. The Spanish wines are right in the front of the shop there on 72nd Street. And he said, I don't really know anything about those. Let me get you my son, who is John Capon, who now runs the the auction empire. But he was really the younger guy at this family business. He was really the only one who knew anything about these wines. So in, in the wine retail trade, I mean, that's one of the oldest retailers in the country. You know, they didn't really know much about him either. It was only the young the young gun at the shop who even paid attention to those. But he had a few of those wines, some pre-rots, which I bought there. And so you had to be at a really good store with someone who was really interested in doing, you know, finding out about all this stuff that he read about in the magazines too. Like, hey, maybe we can get some of this stuff. Maybe it's pretty good. So it really came down to a few stores only really went down that path to find those wines in the early years. Obviously, as the, as the consumer interests became more, importers, distributors, and retail shops were like, okay, well, let's give the people what they need. So it slowly began to grow back then. And you worked in retail yourself in New York? Yeah, I I started in 2001 for a big retailer, PJ Wine, uptown. They were sort of an upstart themselves, you know, without the track record of some of the bigger midtown players uh, with the more upscale, well-heeled clientele. And that shop, PJ's, where I worked in 2001, the owner, Peter Yee, was interested in Spanish wine. So... He, you know, took an interest and started stocking those wines and liked those wines when he tried them. When I got there, being really into Spanish wine, he looked to me for guidance on what to get. And we, at a certain moment, I can't remember what year, decided, you know, why not make PJ's a destination for Spanish wine? Because those more well-to-do shops with their well-heeled clientele, they weren't really doing that. So from a business point of view, it was perfect. It was a niche that a a younger shop could take on, but it also had really good stuff that they believed in. So it was perfect. So PJ's then set out with my help, and it was a great time to be a wine buyer in New York then. Because people were interested in new stuff and it was all starting to arrive and the press was interested and people in turn wanted to hear, wanted to taste this stuff they read about. So at PJ's, we really pushed Spanish wine. We started to go over there. So I, my network of wineries I knew and friends and all expanded greatly. We championed Sherry before it was popular to do so having tremendous sherry selection. I remember it was a huge selection of really great sherry on the wall. Yeah, we. I would have to say my, my modus operandi in those days was if there's a VOS or VRS out there that we don't have, we should have it. And that was 
kind of our goal was whatever's good, let's get it. And so that's what we did. With the Finos and Manzanillas, freshness was often an issue. We had cases where we just turned stuff back because it had been sitting in a warehouse and it was supposed to be a, a, a pale straw colored and it was like a golden colored and you tasted it and it was kind of done. Sherry, even Manzanillas and Finos, the pale ones, they can age actually really well if they're stored properly. That's how place uh, groups like Equipo Navasos, they bring in these Manzanilla Posadas and these very old Finos. It's because if they're kept properly, they actually do age remarkably well. Even if they don't have the same yeasty freshness as when they're first released, it's like any other fine wine, they evolve. Um, and if they're stored well, they maintain their freshness, their acidity, even though they're oxidative wines, maybe less so for the Finos and Manzanillas, uh, with the cover of floor that keeps them fresh. But those wines, they become more complex and because they're stored well and they had good acidity to start, they're still fresh and amazing. In fact, one of the most exciting things we came across recently in our search for old vintage Rioja is we came upon a lot of 25 cases of a a wine that's no longer made now. It's a Fino. It was one of the top Finos, a single vineyard from the Marcanudo Vineyard, just like Valdespino's Innocente. It was Augustine Blasquez. Carta Blanca was the brand. In a cellar where we source some of our old Riojas, we were telling the owner of the cellar, it's a private collection, we were telling him, we have some customers interested in white wines and you know, do you have anything? And he was, I think, thrilled that someone would be interested in old white wines because in Spain they really aren't. And he said, oh, and I found this sherry too. So, you know, we got a sample and my partner tried it in Spain, brought a sample over here where we showed it to some customers. And it was just blow away delicious. Like, sort of like, one of those Equipo Navasos, but this had been in bottle, not in barrel. We think this particular lot was bottled maybe around 82 or something. So it's been, it's been sitting in bottle for a long time. But it has all the complexity of one of these late release, say, Manzanilla Posadas or something. You know, just layers of nuttiness, but still some of the yeasty quality of high quality sherry with, you know, still a lot of snap and zing and vigor, but it also had, for me, it was totally freaky and it took me a while to put my finger on it. It had this Van Joan character from being in a bottle like a Van Joan might've been for decades. So it was like, you know, mega complex because it had this whole other layer of having been in bottle and aged in a certain different way than when it was in barrel. So you know, we, we found some cases of that, which we'll bring to the States, but you know, that's, that's, a uh, 25 cases for the world. I don't know where else you're going to find that. And it's, it's, you know, it's a singular happenstance kind of thing, but it just shows you how Sherry can age. So what I'm getting at is you buy your bottle of Equipo Navasos or even a much more readily available quality 
Fino, even a Tio Pepe, which is a quality wine, keep it keep it in your wine cellar for 10 years and you'll be surprised that you've actually got something really cool and interesting. And one of the things that was interesting that you did when you were at PJ's is you were traveling to Bordeaux and then to Spain. So you're doing N Premier and then going to Rioja and you did that year after year. So it's kind of like what Rioja did, which is look at what's happening in Bordeaux and then bring it back to Rioja. You had that double vision as well in your own learning about wine. Yeah, we, me personally, it was it was fantastic because, of course, I had read about all those Grand Cru Bordeaux and first growths and all that. So for me, it was a chance to actually visit the wineries, taste the wines in barrel, learn how to taste wine in barrel, come back the next year and the next year and see the evolution of those wines, try older vintages from decades ago and try to, you know, piece together how the evolution works which is something that I also did in Rioja. It's trying to understand, okay, what is this wine today? How will it be in 10 years? How will it be in 20 years? How does the changes in the production style kind of alter that? So it's maybe not the same because not many wineries make their wine the same way 30 years, you know, over 30 years time. Lopez Heredia being one of the few that does. So yeah, it was very much Rioja, was what we know of as Rioja today was born out of Bordeaux. Many Rioja producers go to Bordeaux and taste in Premier as well because, you know, A, they're friends with those people. Some of them, like Basilio Izquierdo, he studied in Bordeaux. He has an enology degree at the University of Bordeaux. Michel Roland was his classmate and friend and still is his buddy today. So there's definitely a, a Bordeaux Rioja connection. And because Bordeaux has the superior marketing of France over, you know, centuries um, and the, you know, superior recognition in the marketplace, they also have, you know, greater budgets and they are able to finance trying things that before the Spaniards were. So Bordeaux is probably the center for the best techniques in the world because they've got the bucks to actually do it. I mean, obviously they've had their ups and downs too. Bordeaux's kind of a boom bust town, though the top brands always seem to do well. So finances really play a part in what happens at a particular winery, you know, the bankroll of the owners. But anyway, point being the, Rioja winemakers, they go to Bordeaux, they learn about and are interested in the same techniques. And the better Rioja producers are not as insular as they used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, the better ones are quite well aware of the best wines coming out of Bordeaux. They taste Burgundies, uh, maybe Italian wines less just because it's not quite as easy access. But the winemakers and wine producers I respect most in Rioja, they taste the best of all over the world because that's what they're competing with. And it's, um, you know, that, those are the benchmarks that they feel they have to meet or exceed. So a lot of change in New York over the period that you witnessed, the 25 years that you saw. But where is the potential to still learn more? What do you see in Spain that hasn't been quite understood in New York? You know, I, I think actually a lot of what's good in Spain actually does make it here. It's just 
kind of very piecemeal to find it. It's not, I mean, back when I first started out, you really had to search hard to find stuff. Even if you found it, there might only be a couple bottles at retailer X or Y. Now it's much more widespread, but the number of wines has mushroomed. So there's, I, I think what you get here is a reflection of what's good there. Problem is that it's, there's just so many things going on in Spain. There's a huge amount of experimentation. So I, I don't feel like we're quite missing anything. And also here in America, we're much more curious and open to exploration. The domestic market in Spain is much more tradition bound. So regions like Jumilla, in Spain, the reputation of Jumilla, which is basically a monastrel, big, powerful wines, Mediterranean wines tend to be high alcohol. And back in the day in Spain, those were very rustic wines and not necessarily the most fun to drink. So in Spain, people don't drink Jumilla. Here, they do. And you can get some really nice wines for 12 bucks, barrel-aged wines for 12, 14 bucks that are really nice. And if, if you like the really powerful over-the-top style, you can get some 30 and $50 versions. And if that's your taste, those big overwrought wines, which are not my, my taste, which, well, I call them overwrought, um, but they may suit some people's palates, especially people weaned on ripe California wines. Those wines are here, but they're not really in Spain. So in a way, we get more of Spain than Spain gets. And it's mostly because here in the U.S., we know we don't know that much, so we're always interested in what else there is and what's the new thing. In Spain, as like in France, your average Frenchman thinks he already knows it all. So why does he need to bother with something new? Um, obviously there are more wine geek type circles where they're always into the latest orange wine out of Alsace or whatever. But unlike Europe, I think we have the advantage in the, in the States of people being interested in new and different stuff. But like I said, there's so many new experiments. It might even be the same winery that's trying three or five different things, some of which are kind of crazy and some work and some don't work. So I would put it more like here in the States, there's a lot of a lot of opportunity to try cool stuff. It's just, it's erratically available. And also I would say there probably will be a sort of a shakeout when people kind of figured out where their experiments went right and went wrong and kind of took those to their natural, you know, better result. So I, I think it's still a time of much flux in terms of people doing cool stuff, especially with the organic movement. Spain, much lower than France to take up that kind of track. So, and in Spain, you know, people think of organic wines pretty negatively. The Is that true? Yeah. You talk to an older gentleman and you want an organic wine and they'll be like, really? <laughs> I mean, even with, with my wine collector buddy who got me on Spanish wines altogether. We were in Rioja once and we were at some bar and I was like, oh, what is this weird looking organic wine? Let's try it. He's like, come on. We tried it. It was horrible. So 
it, you know, it comes back to many organic products back in the 70s that were made by well-meaning, but not necessarily highly skilled people. And wine is a very technical art. You need a chemistry degree, basically, to do it well. I mean, obviously, there are people who can do it by the seat of their pants on some level, but it's, you know, it's chemistry. So many of the earlier examples of organic wine were were crap, putting it simply. Obviously, now you have serious producers, especially in France, making great wines, and those people really know what they're doing. And whether they're biodynamic or not, their goal is to make great wine first. And, you know, organic is just part of their process. So there are some of those people in Spain. But people are maybe not, and the marketplace in Spain is not so big for organic. It's mainly for overseas. And for the reasons I said, the, the connotations are negative. So, you know, it costs more to get an organic certificate. You may jeopardize your crop size if you don't take certain non-organic measures in a crisis moment. So the Spaniards are, are you know, a not really pushing it so hard because, you know, the demand is not there for them. There are some who truly believe who really are making excellent wines and are committed, but it, it doesn't have the same power it does in, in Spain or we have in the marketplace here. But you will see Rioja producers who now make an organic. Typically, it's younger vines. It's maybe not quite where it will be eventually. And what about the connotations of the brand name Rioja and the brand name Sherry today in the U.S. market? Are those <clears throat> understandings correct? I don't know. It's Brands are such a finicky thing driven so much by fashion. Sherry over the centuries has been completely a victim of its own success and going in and out of fashion. Rioja, I think, is much more stable because it's the most famous red wine of Spain. So I think it's got a, a solid reputation. I think it's a generational thing as well. That's the thing about brands. Older generations who remember when about all you could find was Montesillo and Marquez de Caceres, they think of Rioja as these kind of light, kind of cheap, not bad wines. You know, and for those generations, except for the more wine-focused people who are more collector and wine geek and connoisseur types, you know, that's what it's always going to be for them. And, and, you know, I meet those people at tastings and sometimes they're like, wow, this wine is really great. It's cool. I didn't know. And so it's partly a matter of educating the generations. But I think if we talk about the millennials, they're much more open to things and also the quality level since they came on the scene is much higher and the diversity of what's available is much greater. I, I think it's something that just is slow and takes time and requires a sustained effort. I mean, you, if you lose a generation like the 70s with the lower quality they had, then the people who grew up in that generation, it's going to be hard to win them back. And the generation after is going to be influenced by that generation. So it has to be a sustained effort. I think Rioja, despite some quibbles here and there, they're actually doing a pretty good job. And what really makes that possible is just the 
the baseline quality level is very high. And they've kind of raised the bar for themselves, like I said, in reaction to the success of Rivera del Duero. So Sherry, on the other hand, much more problematic. Sherry has multiple generations where people are like, you know, that's a grandma wine or that's a sweet wine or that's a really cheap, sweet grandma wine. And, you know, so people who are, even if they're not wine collectors or anything like that, but, you know, they want a nice, you know, in America, what's the classic wine? You don't want a nice California Cabernet. That's what I'm thinking. You ask a typical guy who wants a nice California Cabernet about Sherry, he's going to be like, some cheap sweet stuff? Like, not in a million years am I going to touch that. So Sherry has had, has a much harder time because it's got that association. Because if you go to the middle of the country and you ask for even a bottle of Tio Pepe, it might be on the top shelf. It might be baking hot and completely stale. So anybody who happens to try that bottle is going to think, wow, this is junk. Like, who drinks this and why? So it's kind of a self-perpetuating problem. Sherry, on the other hand, now because many wine geeks and people in the know take it seriously and have tried the higher level versions and have come to see even at the low end with basic finos and manzanillas, what great wines they are with food or just at cocktail hour or even in cocktails, because there's this movement of appreciation amongst what I would call the cognoscenti that things have changed. And that's because of, I, I would say, the openness of the millennials. Whereas the, the previous generations, it's really hard to get people to take back their notions, especially when there's so many other wines they can buy and they're not into fortified wines anyway. Like, like I said, the Cabernet, California Cabernet guy, like, why is he going to bother even if it's really great? You need to have his millennial son show up with his girlfriend and break out some sherry and then he'll be like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty good. But on his own, not going to happen. Justin Berlin of Spanish Wine Exclusives. He's made a point of a sustained effort to learn more about Spanish wine and these influence the people who have come after him. Thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Justin Berlin of Spanish Wine Exclusives. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe, on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.